Last week on The Foreign Desk, we heard from three distinguished guests we met at the Globesec 2022 Bratislava Forum. So many distinguished guests did we meet at Globesec that this week we'll hear from three more. Unsurprisingly, the forum was dominated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a neighbour of Slovakia to its east, lending discussions an even greater immediacy. In this second of our special episodes recorded at Globesec, we'll speak to the Chief of Policy Planning and International Relations at Romania's Ministry of Defence. We'll meet a former Swedish Prime Minister and Foreign Minister as his country prepares to end centuries of official neutrality and join NATO. And we'll hear from a Ukrainian MP elected to the Vakovna Rada in 2019 amid the landslide victory of President Volodymyr Zelensky's serve of the People Party, the movement named after the satirical TV sitcom in which Zolensky had played the role he now finds himself filling for real. Should we maybe have listened more carefully to Eastern Europe, where the subject of Russia is concerned? Was there any way Russia could have been headed off? And how do you adjust from governing a country at peace to leading one at war? This is The Foreign Desk. When you are located on the shore of the Black Sea, very close to the Snakes Island, and the island was taken very short after the 24th of February, when you are located there, you are feeling different. This was a decision for war taken by President Putin himself. That being said, I think the system is that once the decision was taken, they were part of it. And once Russia goes to war, Russia can't lose that particular war. Welcome to the Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Our first guest is Simona Kodjukaru, State Secretary and Chief of the Department of Defence Policy and International Relations at Romania's Ministry of Defence. I began by asking Simona whether the war in Ukraine has altered the way in which Romania sees the map of Eastern Europe. We are very much concerned mm. about these evolutions because, you know, it's about strategic geography. When you are located on the shore of the Black Sea, very close to the Snakes Island, only 22 kilometers away out of the shore of Romania. And probably you know that the Snakes Island is a very strategic focal point for Russians today. And the island was taken very short after the 24th of February. So this demonstrates how strategic it is. So when you are located there, you are feeling differently. I do want to come back to the Black Sea, but that was something I wanted to follow up on, whether you feel like, and this is something we've noticed over the last few months talking to a lot of politicians from Eastern Europe and the Baltic states, do you still feel like Eastern Europe and Western Europe see Russia slightly differently? I'm not saying Western Europe does not take what has happened seriously, but Romania is one of those countries which has very recent memory of living not necessarily under Russian occupation, but certainly behind Russia's Iron Curtain. Does it seem different the closer you live to Russia, do you think? I have invoked 2014 Crimea and what happened after Crimea on purpose to say to you that Romania was amongst the allies, very vocal, very strongly advocating the importance of consolidating the eastern flank after Crimea. 
And yes, some of your lies were not so, you know, convinced at the end of the day about the danger. Probably they operating still illusions in relation with Russian Federation. But the age of innocence right now is over in relation with Russian Federation. And that's why this time around, we are feeling a great sense of unity and solidarity. And I will offer you a couple of examples. Mm. For instance, NATO deployed for the first time in modern times, the spearhead force of NATO mm. response force in Romania under French lead just after 24 February, very quickly, very rapidly, very swiftly on the shore of the Black Sea. Moreover, NATO activated the graduate response plans. Practically, we are witnessing the biggest reinforcement of collective defense right now. And I could add to this also a decision taken by our leaders on 24 February on the occasion of the extraordinary NATO summit in Brussels, the setup of four new battle groups on the eastern flank, Romania, Hungary, Slovakia and Bulgaria. What more do you think Romania still needs, though? You've called for a brigade-sized NATO presence in Romania. Do you envisage or do you want a permanent NATO base in Romania or permanent NATO bases in Romania? This is our aim, and we are very much supporting this at NATO table. The allies are now thinking about NATO's long-term posture adaptation. Mm. So we are seeing the translation of the battle groups to a superior level, brigade level. We need a more permanent presence because we have to be pragmatic. We need to look very carefully to the level of the threat, which is clear, is Russia. And we need to be very much prepared to face any threat from any direction, any time. You were speaking earlier about the idea of the end of any sense of innocence about what Russia might intend and what Russia might be capable of. If we focus that on a case which is very, very proximate to Romania, which is, of course, Moldova, and it's very possible to look at Moldova as, as Ukraine writ very, very small, in that you already have that analogue to the Russian-occupied Donbass in the form of Transnistria. How concerned is Romania that Russia might actually deliberately seek to spread what it's doing in Ukraine to Moldova? Because it would make a certain amount of strategic sense from Russia's point of view. It would cause yet more chaos and upheaval and uncertainty. Is there anything Romania can do to guard against that? Very much concerned about the situation in Republic of Moldova and, of course, in Transnistria. Some time ago, very recently, we have witnessed some incidents there. Uh, mm. However, we sent messages, you know, to take a balanced approach. We uh, invited to calm because it's a very vulnerable, very fragile environment. And Romania is one of the allies, one of the EU member states, supporting actively, strongly, massively, if you like, the European course of Republic of Moldova. And we are very much supporting alongside Ukraine and also other partner, Georgia. These countries, independent choice of their destiny. Let's talk a bit more about the Black Sea. Do you think that that is something that is not yet being taken as seriously as it might be by the EU and NATO? Because obviously it is a frontier between the EU slash NATO and Russia, and you also have the complicating fact, or I think potentially complicating fact, that the entrance to the Black Sea obviously 
belongs to Turkey, which while a member of NATO is not always NATO's most reliable member. How big a potential source of conflict do you think that is? I think Black Sea is indeed a strategic sea. And our aim is to have this reflected very strongly in the new strategy concept. Black Sea should remain very high on our agenda because probably the Russian Federation has now two directions of offensive. Of course, one is in the east, in Donbass, but the worst case scenario for us will be Odessa, taken by the Russians, and also the southern part, the coastline of Ukraine to the Black Sea. And of course, the Russians to get to the mouth of Danube. And just imagine Ukraine having no access to the Black Sea. Look at the problems right now on economic side. If you like, it's more than a war. It's about the war of food, of resources, and we are very much supporting. We are trying to do our best. Romania is trying to play an important role on this side. And we are very much praise Turkey's role as an ally. And also at the Black Sea, we are trying very much to get that congruency between the three allies at the Black Sea, Romania, Bulgaria and Turkey. By the way, very recently in Istanbul, it took place the trilateral Romania-Poland-Turkey. This is a very, very beneficial, valuable format of cooperation at the level of ministries of foreign affairs. So we are putting a lot of efforts in getting forward the cooperation at the Black Sea. What else do you think NATO and Romania in particular can do to deter any further ambitions Russia might have towards the mouth of the Danube? Is it just a question of military reinforcements in Romania, that brigade-sized NATO presence you've talked about, or are there more, I don't know, symbolic gestures that could be made, declarations that could be made? I'm just wondering if you think Russia is yet taking NATO's resolve seriously enough. I think NATO is united. This is crystal clear. NATO is united and also this complements what the European Union is doing by sanction policies, very important measures taken as a premier, if you like, by the European Union. And also I think that this massive reinforcement of collective defense is such a strong signal for mm. the Russian Federation that NATO is going to defend each and every inch of NATO's territory and populations. This is crystal clear. By the way, Romania entered NATO ranks 18 years ago, back in 2004 in Istanbul. And 18 years we have learned how to be a good ally, a mm. robust one, a steadfast ally. But right now, we know the meaning of having allies. NATO is not anymore somewhere in Brussels in NATO HQ. NATO is on the shore of the Black Sea. That was the State Secretary of Romania's Ministry of Defence, Simona Kodjukaru. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24.
This is the Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Our next guest is Carl Bildt, co-chair of the European Council on Foreign Relations, who formerly served as the Prime Minister of Sweden from 1991 to 1994 and as Sweden's Foreign Minister from 2006 to 2014. I began by asking Carl how likely the prospect of Sweden joining NATO seemed to him perhaps six months ago. Well, I was of the opinion that we were heading towards NATO membership, if you would have asked me during the last few years. We were on a glide path to NATO membership. But would that have taken 10 or 15 years? I don't know, but it was that time perspective. We got sort of closer and closer and closer and closer, and some of the mental inhibitions that had been there holding up the process were gradually, gradually, gradually disappearing. But it was a long-term process. But then, of course, February 24th gave rocket fuel to the entire thing. And here we are. So when you talk about that glide path, are you referring to the deployment of Swedish troops in Afghanistan and Kosovo, Swedish aircraft in Libya? Part of it, part of it, no question. I've been part of the NATO operations. Started really with Bosnia, we did Kosovo, we did Libya, we did Afghanistan. But primarily the fact that when we entered the European Union in 1995, the concept of neutrality disappeared. And we went into a process of increased sort of coordination with NATO also on territorial defense issues. So we were taking part in sort of the large NATO exercises in Northern Europe. We have NATO exercises on our territory. We have standardized our equipment along NATO standards, made it interoperable. So there's been a lot of small steps continuously during the last sort of maybe 20 years in terms of bringing us closer together to NATO, also on territorial defense issues. Do you think, though, in the last three months in particular, this has suddenly become less controversial among Swedish people? Obviously. Just look at the opinion polls. I don't have the latest data, but I mean, support for entering NATO is in the 60% range, opposition in the 20% range. Obviously, you then have 20% undecided. There's been an element of anguish, I think, would be the appropriate word in English, among certain people who are still living or were living in the past, I would say, slightly polemic, but anyhow, of sort of the neutrality, third word, whatever, slight anti-American tilt to that of the sort of previous decades. So that's an element of anguish there, but among the vast bulk of public opinion, strong support. But if we examine the the current situation or the situation that has existed for the last three months, you obviously have a long career in having to think about Russia and interact with Russia and deal with Russia as foreign minister and as prime minister. Are you surprised that we find ourselves where we are, that basically that Russia has done this thing that it has done? Yes and no. I think, uh, and I've been quite a lot with also the Russia Ukraine relationship during mm. the last sort of whatever years and seeing all of the missteps of primarily President Putin in that particular respect. Did I expect him to go as far as he did? I think from his essay that he published in July of mm. last summer, that really shook me in the sense that then it was obvious a strategic intent from the Russian side to get control over Ukraine and Belarus. And then when we started to see a couple of different moves, not only the military moves, other moves on the diplomatic and political side, during the autumn, no question, the likelihood of a major thing. And I sort of, I'm on the record for saying, I think I sort of changed my opinion sort of mid-November or late November and say, now it's more likely than not that he will invade. Mm-hmm. Was I dead certain? No. I became dead certain when I saw this sort of the Security Council meeting on 
February the 21st. Then I went from sort of 95 to 100% or something like that. In retrospect, then, do you think of the years from 2014 to now, 2014 obviously being Russia's initial invasion of Ukraine and seizure of the Crimea, as something of a missed opportunity? Was the EU and NATO complacent in just assuming, well, that's probably all he really wants? I'm sure it'll be more or less fine. This will be another one of their frozen conflicts and probably we don't have to worry about it too much. I think that was probably the case, that that was the sort of prevalent thinking. Did we sort of do sufficient in terms of the sort of Minsk process or Normandy format? Could it have been other formats or whatever? Could be that we should have done more. Would it have made a difference? I'm not certain. Because what happened was an evolution with Mr. Putin himself. And you can see that if you follow his speeches. Uh, he became more and more interested in the past of Russia and less and less in the future of Russia. And then he was sort of someone fairly close to him said that his closest advisors are sort of Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, <laughs> Catherine the Second. That's the sort of the world that he is sunk down into and want to recreate and want to be among them, in a sense. Could we have influenced that? We could have tried. Would we have succeeded? I'm not quite certain. I mean, this is a development that was outside of us to a large extent. How likely do you think it is, though, and I know this is asking you to indulge in a spot of hypothetical Kremlinology, that he's been able to take his entire regime, his entire circle along with him? I mean, obviously, Sergei Lavrov is somebody who you would have had many interactions with. Do you think Lavrov buys this sort of strange, mystical, metaphysical idea of the greater Russia that Putin was talking about in that essay you refer to? If you look at that remarkable meeting that he had of the National Security Council, which he put on television, I mean, probably slightly edited, but when it was out on television, but anyhow, and went through the different members of the National Security Council and said, what do you think? You don't really see a crowd of enthusiasts there. You see the one after the other being sort of rather reluctant to go along with what they can hear that the president wants them to say, and they all sort of fall in line, more or less. But they were not a crowd of happy warmongers. So my interpretation of this is that this was a decision for war taken by President Putin himself. I doubt that the others would have done it. And that little set piece was his way of making everybody else complicit. That being said, I think the system is that once the decision was taken, they're all part of it. And once Russia goes to war... Russia can't lose that particular war. So then you have sort of a consolidation of the regime around a position that they wouldn't necessarily have taken, have they asked them sort of more individually or have they considered the issues more carefully. History books will be written about this, but this will be my preliminary draft for that particular chapter. Again, if we think back to about 2014, I think I'm right in saying that you were at that point something of a sanctions sceptic, sceptical of sanctions as a means of inducing Russia to change its behaviour in any meaningful way. Do you still think that's the case, that Russia just basically doesn't really care at this point? I do think they care about sanctions. It's right that I've been sort of slightly sceptical of sanctions as the one and only instrument. I'm supportive of sanctions as part of a policy that is somewhat wider. I don't think we should expect sanctions short term to alter the direction of Russian policy or the direction of Putin policies at this particular time. It won't. First, there is an element of stamina in the Russian system. 
At the moment, they're making indecent sums of money on oil and gas exports, which has to do with the price levels being much higher than anyone thought. So money is flowing into Russia at the moment. That doesn't mean that sanctions are useless. Sanctions are normally effective at two different sort of segments of policy. First, before you introduce them, where you threaten with them. So when before the invasion, the Western policy was to say to Mr. Putin, if you do this, big things are going to happen in terms of sanctions. He probably didn't really believe it, but it did happen. So they blamed them. The second phase where they are important is at some point in time, when you approach a situation where you might see resolution or some easing of the whatever it is, then the possibility of lifting sanctions does have a political effect. In the meantime, for the duration of the conflict, it is rather seldom that they themselves cause any major change of direction or policy. And looking ahead much further, I suspect, unfortunately, is the situation we're in, or some variant of the situation we're in, this fairly obvious antagonism between Western Europe and Russia, do we have to just get used to the idea that that's an eternal fact of life? Because there was, of course, and you will remember it, this optimism circa the early to mid-90s, that Russia will become a normal European country. It'll be like one giant Luxembourg. Is that remotely possible, do you think? I think a giant Luxembourg is distinctly impossible. (laughs) (laughs) I exaggerate slightly, but that idea was there, that Russia could be... There was even talk of Russia joining NATO. Oh, there was, and about talking of the European Union, absolutely. I mean, there was an element of optimism. That's a German phrase, Svek optimismus. It doesn't translate really into English, which is optimism in order to achieve an objective, sort of optimism in order to create something. And there was a lot of that. Uh, we wanted to be optimistic, we wanted to help, we wanted to hope that this was going to be the case. Turned out not to be the case. Will there be something coming back in normal Russia? I don't know what a normal Russia is really, because every country is rather special and Russia might be somewhat more special than most due to its history and geography and culture and whatever. I think we are going to live with this confrontation with Russia over this for the foreseeable future. We're going to be at war with Russia for quite some time. And it's going to be a war. I hope it's not going to be a sort of all-out kinetic war at the time. It could be war with other means and other theatres and other aspects to it. But as long as this particular regime is in power in Russia, they will be at war with us. And we must understand that we are at war with them. That was Carl Bildt, former Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Sweden. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. This is The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. And finally, on today's show, we hear from Maria Mezenseva, a Ukrainian member of parliament and head of the Ukrainian delegation to the Council of Europe Parliamentary Assembly. I began by asking Maria what kind of conversations she'd been able to have at Globsec and with whom. Well, first of all, you know, I'm, we are living a dream right now because a little bit more than a month ago when we were here to see the Prime Minister Hager, different ministers and our colleagues from the parliament all been organized by Globsec, which mm-hmm. I really want to emphasize. We were thinking, okay, there has to be something. It's, it's going to go further. It's not going to stop in July, probably, or in August. That's what we were thinking back then, in April. We should have something solid. So I think Globsec, after this almost two years of a break, is having extremely high-level panelists. You know, when mm. when they ha- they even they even created this app, and 
seven to ten events rolling simultaneously and everything is on Ukraine. So when I'm hearing, you know, Ukraine is coming a little bit down in the agenda, well, definitely not at this security conference. And I really like the fact that President Zelensky was able to speak at the very beginning. I mean, I'm not saying that's all our achievement, but, you know, the, his agenda is extremely busy, but he was very satisfied. That's the feedback I got from the president's office yesterday. And I think his speech was very straightforward. Moreover, it all happens right in a very, very important moment before the vote of the Council, of the European Council on the 24th, which we believe is a political decision that is here up in the air. Okay, so where are these countries? Who can we talk to? Here, you know, I see a very interesting platform for local level because the grassroots democracy is about local level. And I've, I've worked in the city council before becoming a member of parliament, same constituency, but these opportunities that we are having here to bring the voices of the mayors and governors of those cities which are really suffering, like my home one, Kharkiv, today the mayor spoke at the panel addressing donors and international organizations for potential for the cooperation. The besieged cities, the mayor of Melitopol, a very, very courageous governor, Kim, from the Mykolaiv region. All of them are a great also project of European integration, which was already been implemented since 2014, the most prominent reform on decentralization. And, you know, the way they're operating right now is just a heroic uh, stories. So I think it's not only about the top agenda of, you know, what we are expecting on the 24th to happen, but also in, in the way how we do we link it down to the ground in terms of the lack of food when we are here having breakfast, mm. lunches and dinners. There are people who are un under eating back home and we shouldn't forget about the heart of this beating war, the Mariupol, and how it was back in March when people had no water to drink and they were melting snows. And every, you know, unborn child and this, this ceremony that we had yesterday, which was firstly in the history of this award from the Czech and Slovak mm. uh, people and an organized prize for the people of Ukraine, for the bravery of Ukrainian people. All that comes in today reality of a hundred days of war and you know for us it's a hundred day of the 24th of february and this is how it feels with a little bit more clarity on the weapons on the sanctions but still with more more challenges to go further regular listeners to monocle 24 will know that over the last few months we've spoken to quite a few of your fellow ukrainian mps and obviously everybody in ukraine has seen their lives upended by the last hundred days but for people like you who were only elected in 2019, which must now seem like a very long time ago, I, I did want to start by going back to that point and thinking about what you hoped to accomplish as an MP at the time, what your political ambitions were in 2019, because I'm guessing at least that in 2019, you did not imagine yourself three years down the track as part of a government of a country fighting for its survival. So when you were elected, what was what was your idea of how your first term would pan out? So I'm in politics for 13 years. Yeah, mm. I've started when I was 20 as an intern mm -hmm. in European institutions, and I was a lobbyist, and the war started in 2014, 
all because of the non-signing of association agreement. So now I'm working in the Committee of European Integration. That was my target. Mm -hmm. I've achieved it. So I wouldn't say it, something has changed. We're going on the track of European integration. We've implemented 63% of this association agreement plan. There's more to come. We've achieved free aviation agreement signing. Yeah, we've uh, we've finalizing the waste management law. Finally, first in 30 years. All that was coming again from the very grassroots of local politics. When I when I didn't see in 2015 the separation of plastic cartons and, and other waste, I was irritating for me because I've been doing that in UK when I lived there, in US when I worked there and, and other countries. So I traveled a bit around the globe and I think Ukraine is doing a lot and achieved a lot so that we can be not back to the European family, but enriching and strengthening European family. And I think, you know, and it's fair to say that in terms of legislation and daily life, which are which can't be, you know, um, taken away from each other. This is very important to understand that there are countries who never reached the the well, level so. of what yeah. we've accomplished in national legislation, and they were still accepted to the club. And we are debating it now. And my interesting point of, you know, summarizing what I'm hearing here as well. Look, Belgium, Netherlands, France, Germany, we're, we're, we're naming the countries which are from the founding countries club of six. Mm. And they've never been through this painful, uh, painful developments in legislation because it really takes an effort to pass a law when it comes to European integration. Many different groups are thinking differently. And even though we have, as they say, a mono majority right now, I think this leadership of the president takes plays a big role because it's not only saying that we're moving somewhere, it's about doing also. In 2019, when we became parliamentarians representing constituency, we knew that there will be allocations of the, of the government budget to the constituencies. Mm. So I've managed to attract 50 million grievances. Okay, we, you can divide it by 30 <laughs> and go to pounds, euros, whatever, but that's a lot. We've we've done the beautiful project with the government money of the best kids hospital, which was ruined on the day two in Kharkiv. We've done so many you know playgrounds and sports arenas and helped those who participated in the Olympics, Paralympics games. All that was done in this two and a half years time. We've built the best roads ever in thirty years. We've we've gained so much more economic power, and now we spend money on, well, let's say not the war, but on surviving and our partners money are spent on weapons, on humanitarian aid, on everything which could have been sent, let's say to the Green Deal, yeah, which mm -hmm. was about reforming policy in energy and dependency on gas, which we all agreed upon voluntarily. So I think it's about opportunities still. Ukraine has a great achievement on the fourth day of war. We got connected to the energy community of the EU, mm -hmm. and now we're exporting electricity to the subcontinent of Europe, uh, completely dispatched from Russia and Belarus. And again, because the planet is suffering, the climate change is there. It's, it's all there regardless of the war. We have to tackle that. So this is unevitable challenges for us, which are still remaining. But, you know, for some countries, it's without war. But for us, it's simultaneously with war and losses.
You mentioned there the, the, the leadership of uh, President Zelensky, who was, of course, uh, part of the opening ceremony of, yeah. of Globesec appearing from Kiev. I know he is a figure that has mesmerized the world to a certain extent over the last three months, but I'm interested, as someone who's worked with him and someone who knew him before all yeah. this started, are you surprised by the transition he has made? Because it's he'd already made one quite remarkable transition from obviously comedian and sitcom actor to president. That's a bit of a leap right there. But from from president to to leader of a country fighting for its life, are you surprised by it? And perhaps do you think he's kind of surprised himself? I don't think I'm surprised at all because what I've been seeing, I didn't know President Zelensky before the elections. Yeah, so mm. I got to know him once we became a big team and I've been passing this several tours of being a candidate for a candidate for elections and all that. But I never doubt that his firm vision of how Donbass should come back home or how we should deal with Crimean issue. It was, he was always very clear. It was about, let's say, the forces of the opposition to criticize it of something that is not happening very speedy. Or when he said in his first interviews, I am ready to talk to Putin in person. He mm. was so much criticized. And now when he's continuing to say the same thing he's been saying back then, it's just the Putin who's not ready to talk to President Zelensky because he knows he has nothing to say, nothing to offer. He's just illogic. War is not about talks and diplomacy and solutions. It's it's about satisfying his uh, Putin's sick personal ambitions because he can't get uh, any satisfaction from life. You know, for instance, I like ice cream, and when I eat <laughs> ice cream, I am enjoying it. He doesn't enjoy anything. All he enjoys is. Uh, killings, blood, his imperialistic idea of conquering the world. Well, that's not happening. And we thank him for uniting us all. And that's what President Zelensky has been calling for almost this three years. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, we just celebrated three years term mm. of him. I think he's been always clear. He's been traveling to Donbass constantly, talking to military personnel also being criticized for that. So, you know, when you act, you will always be criticized. So I th I'm not surprised when I'm hearing that, you know, people are so surprised, President Zelensky. Yeah, probably people are thinking, gosh, if I were him, would I stay or would I live? I mean, I think it's, it's, it's true of individuals and it's probably true of entire countries and societies that war is one of those things that it doesn't build character, it reveals it. Most people, in, including people who spend their whole lives studying the military and tactical realities of Europe, just assume that with the best will in the world, Russia will roll into Kiev in 72 hours and Ukraine cannot hold them. When you understood that this war was happening and that this invasion had been launched, did, did you have any doubt at all that Ukraine would stand up in the way that Ukraine has? I, I say something which my family doesn't like at all. I'm saying that I'm really willing, I'm not willing, but... I am personally taking these risks every day, you know, mm. coming from Kharkiv and, you know, when my mom understands that I'm traveling because part of the family is relocated within the country, residing in Kiev, Lviv, Kharkiv, Chernigiv area. My grandma doesn't want to relocate from there, even though it's quite dangerous. She stands firm, you know, that's her decision. And I'm like, OK, if the grandma decided so, I am deciding to be in my constituency when I can and when I should be, because I'm representing the people. And I'm a war volunteer for almost nine years. That that My family is fighting in Donbass for these nine years. I 
I probably knew a little bit more maybe of war than than some other people. Mm. I'm I'm not, you know, over exaggerating my my experience, but even though I was not prepared for this war. No one was. You know, you can't be prepared uh, for having while having a dinner to receive six great cassette missiles as it happened mm. to me a couple of 3 weeks ago in Kharkiv. What I expected for sure that the Ukraine as a nation, as a strong nation, where we didn't have at all the army and, and we had sticks literally, you know, in 2014, but we still started organizing the self-battalion divisions and, and calling for help. It was a cry out for sure. Now we are receiving much more support, which is in military senses, more technical, more powerful. Yes, it takes time, Yes, when I was holding a star streak in UK on my shoulder, I knew it's coming, you know, even to my region. I was thrilled. That was the best. I thought it's the best day of my life. No, no, no. There are more and more weapons which are coming daily on daily basis. And it's it's about saving life. It's it's about approaching this victory every day. That was the Ukrainian MP Maria Mezenseva. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. This episode of The Foreign Desk was edited by Chris Ablakwa. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.